I'm Christina Onestead with KPFA News Headlines. Two Oakland City Council members want to extend voting rights for the school board to non-citizens who are parents, legal guardians, or legally recognized caregivers of students who attend the Oakland Unified School District. Here's City Council member Dan Kolb. Public education is a fund- fundamental right in our society. Every parent should have the opportunity to help decide who runs our public school system. This proposed ballot measure, which we're here to discuss today, will allow and will ensure that all Oakland parents, regardless of citizenship status, have an equal say on deciding who our elected leaders are to run our schools. The City Council will consider whether to put the issue to voters at its meeting tomorrow, Tuesday. It comes as the Oakland Unified School District has been roiled in controversy over board members' decision to close about a dozen schools in mostly black and brown communities that spurred a school occupation and a lawsuit by the American Civil Liberties Union. The world's swimming governing body has effectively banned transgender women from competing in women's events. FINA members at the organization's General Congress voted 71% in favor of its new gender inclusion policy that permits swimmers who transitioned before age 12 or puberty to compete in women's events. The vote follows a FINA scientific panel finding trans women have a significant advantage over cisgender swimmers, even when taking testosterone-lowering medication. FINA President Hussein al-Musalam echoed the study and says transitioning after puberty gives transgender women an unfair advantage. I and all of you have an obligation to every single one of our athletes. We should not favor one athlete over the other. Equality is also a key principle for us. This is why we are faced with such a delicate balancing act. We have to protect the rights of all our athletes to compete. But we also have to protect competitive fairness. And Lieberman of Athlete Ally, a nonprofit that advocates for LGBTQ athletes, said in a statement, FINA's decision is, quote, deeply discriminatory, harmful, unscientific, and not in line with the IOC's, that's the International Olympic Committee's, framework on fairness, inclusion, and non-discrimination on the basis of gender identity and sex variations, unquote. FINA's new 24-page policy also proposes a new open competition category that said it was setting up a new working group that would spend the next six months looking at the most effective way to set that new category up. Rail strikes in the United Kingdom are set to disrupt travel tomorrow. Up to 40,000 cleaners, signalers, maintenance workers, and station staff are due to walk out for three days this week, starting Tuesday. The dispute centers on pay and job security at a time of soaring inflation. France's President Emmanuel Macron's party has lost control of Parliament as voters cast ballots for leftist and far-right politicians, showing deep divides in the nation. The leftist Nupis coalition won 131 seats to become the main opposition party, while Macron's centrist party is still the largest with 245 members. They lost the majority, some 44 seats. The biggest win goes to France's far-right party, the National Rally, led by Marine Le Pen. They went from eight members in parliament before the election 
to 89 members. Le Pen called it a historic victory. A federal appeals court has rejected a Trump administration finding the active ingredient in the weed killer Roundup does not pose a serious health risk and is not likely to cause cancer. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit Friday ordered the Environmental Protection Agency to re-examine its 2020 findings that glyphosate does not pose a health risk for people. It's the active ingredient in Roundup, the most widely used herbicide in the world. Its original producer, Monsanto, was bought in 2018 by pharmaceutical giant Bayer, which now faces thousands of claims from people who say Roundup exposure caused their cancer. Writing for a unanimous three-judge panel, Judge Michelle Friedland said the EPA's finding of no risk to human health was not supported by substantial evidence. I'm Christina Honestead. KPFA News Headlines returns at 3 and 4. And please join us at 6 for the evening news. the grain. Did Lincoln free the slaves or did they just as much free themselves? And what were the ramifications of their seemingly impossible achievement, immediate and uncompensated emancipation for other press groups? I'm Sasha Lilly. I'll speak with historian David Rodiger about that revolutionary period in U.S. history and the consequences of its failure today. Studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. In the midst of the Civil War, while President Lincoln waffled over the Emancipation Proclamation, slaves were already freeing themselves in a massive jubilee. The great historian W.E.B. Du Bois called it the general strike of the slaves. And today's guest argues that the self-emancipation of the slaves set in motion, or gave new life to, other liberatory struggles in Seizing Freedom, Slave Emancipation and Liberty for All, published by Verso, David Rodiger looks at how the self-liberation of African-American slaves gave women, Native Americans, wage workers, and others a sense of emancipatory possibilities during what he calls the most liberating and important period in U.S. history. Rodiger is Professor of American Studies and History at Kansas University, and his many books include The Wages of Whiteness. David, the conventional history of the Civil War holds that slavery in the U.S. ended from on high as the slaves were freed by Lincoln. What do you think is missing from that story? Well, I think there's always been a counter-narrative to it. I think that African-American historians in particular uh, talked about emancipation from below for a very long time now. But that's what's missing, is the participation of slaves, the leadership of slaves. Um, when the war started, Frederick Douglass very bitterly called it a war to preserve slavery on both sides in his abolitionist uh, paper, Douglass's Monthly. And what he meant was Lincoln didn't want to free the slaves if he didn't have to, uh, thought that the war was about union. The Confederacy clearly didn't want to free the slaves, was fighting uh, for slavery as a way of life. Uh, so Douglas had this really bitter characterization of the war early on. But then at the same time, he had this quote where he said, uh, this time I think we're to be freed not by the captain but by the crew. 
And what he was reflecting on was that even though the kind of on high position early in the war was that the abolition of slavery immediately uh, was impossible, Douglas knew slaves would want to would see the war as being about about their own freedom. And sure enough, within uh, days after the start of the war, uh, enslaved people started to find their way to Union encampments, and they'd present themselves to rank-and-file soldiers, and then the rank-and-file soldiers would have to decide what to do with them, and in enough cases, the rank-and-file white soldiers brought them to a commander, and all of a sudden, this was a problem for the war effort. So it was that motion of enslaved people toward what they thought the war was about, toward making the war about freedom, that really transforms the war from something that didn't have a moral uh, mission to something that was about emancipation. Well, what did that self-emancipation of the slaves look like at that time, both as it relates to the Civil War itself and on plantations and in, in the workplaces where these people were? The great first historian of this process is W.E.B. Du Bois, and Du Bois called this motion of, of hundreds of thousands of slaves the general strike of the slaves. And when we think of general strikes, we usually think of something that's official and called, or if it's spontaneous, it's based in a, in a labor movement. This was much more uh, cobbled together than that. But it involved, Du Bois thought, between half a million and a million enslaved people out of four million uh, who made their way to freedom in one way or another. But then Du Bois added something really important, and he said that the millions of people who stayed on the plantations also were part of the general strike insofar as they refused to do work in the same way that they had done work in the past. And often their masters, their master's sons were off at war. Or their lives were uh, disrupted in, in many ways so that the old way of bossing slaves was also not not there. But the the idea of the experience of the general strike of the slaves is both these people who left the plantation and people who uh, refused orders on the plantation. And in both those ways, the Confederacy was deprived of labor and was deprived of spirit, of the idea that they knew how the world worked. And they a lot of masters thought their slaves were sure to be loyal, or at least professed to think that their slaves were sure to be loyal so that there was this real crisis uh, created by enslaved people. Give us some stories, because your book, Seizing Freedom, does draw on historical records of uh, accounts of the self-emancipation of slaves. Give us some examples of what this looked like on the ground, on plantations, and beyond. Well, for example, um, the most courageous wrenching decision to run was made by enslaved women because uh, for two reasons. One is that they often had childcare responsibilities on the plantations and to leave without a family was hard and to leave with a family was hard. The second uh, reason was that uh, commanders uh, of the Union Army very quickly uh, decided that they preferred to have male uh, enslaved people come over to their side because they could put them to work in a way that uh, was legible to the, to the army. 
So the most dramatic stories for me are the the women who steal their mistress's dress and and then also steal themselves at the same time. This kind of motion out into a world where you don't know uh, and you're exposing yourself to all sorts of dangers uh, and really leaving a whole way of life behind. So those stories are very, very dramatic stories. The stories of Harriet Tubman uh, rescuing slaves are very dramatic stories. Um, the story of Robert uh, Smalls, the South Carolina boat pilot uh, who steals a ship uh, in disguise, uh, makes his way and takes advantage of the skills that he had as an enslaved boat pilot to bring not only himself to the Union Army, but the ship also to the Union Army. Um, the songs that surrounded it were very dramatic. A song like No More Auction Block, which Dylan still sings from time to time in concert, was kind of the first history of emancipation. And slaves sort of announced all of the things that they were getting rid of, driver's lash, uh, auction block, uh, but also um, peck of corn, no more rations, no more ability to know where your next meal was was coming from. So the drama is captured in a in a thousand little situations. Tell us more about what happened to the slaves who then joined up with the Union Army and how that changed during the course of the Civil War. But the original response of Lincoln and of most of the generals was to say this to still say this is not a war of emancipation so you can come here all you want but that still doesn't confer freedom on you so the word that was used to describe these uh people who had fled uh over to the union camp was contraband in the same way that if you uh captured a, a pen full of uh confederate pigs they would be contraband they would be property seized in the course of a of a war and so that's all the more that, that uh, slaves were until pretty deep into the war. They were just property still, but now property in the hands of a Union um, commander. They were often asked to dig in battlements. Uh, my friend Andrew Zimmerman is doing a fantastic book on German radical immigrants and enslaved people as agents of emancipation uh, in in the, the Civil War. And he, he has this history of how the Mississippi River was re-engineered using formerly enslaved labor to enable uh, Confederate blockades to be circumvented so that there was this whole part of the war that we don't yet know very much about in which the Confederate blockade wasn't unsuccessful because it was attacked, but it was unsuccessful because enslaved people built a channel uh, that ships could use uh, instead of the the normal channel of the of the Mississippi. So there are all of these ways in which early in the war, it's the labor of the enslaved person that um, is is critical, and then the the denial of labor to the master. So both those things go together and are big big plus for the um, Union Army. But as uh, time goes on. It becomes uh, more and more clear that the South is putting up a fight, and the biggest gain that the uh, Union can have is to emancipate the slaves and to use them as soldiers and sailors. And so in the latter part of the war, 
over 100,000 uh, formerly enslaved people directly fight uh, on the on the Union side. Tell us more about the way that the slave owners and then those elites in, in the North, obviously with different interests, reacted to the the turning of the world upside down. I mean, this sense of this whole group of people who had been oppressed, throwing off their shackles, and then the whole sense of a potential to do more. How is that received with absolute fear? Particularly on the part of the, of the slaveholders. And again, it was not just that the, the uh, slaveholder was losing property, but was losing a world. And, and use that phrase, the world turned upside down. Uh, for the slave master who had convinced himself, the slave mistress who had convinced herself that they knew their slaves or that their slaves uh, had an emotional attachment to them and their slaves were loyal, to then uh, find out that their slaves had gone and had taken whatever they could take with them when they, when they left. That was a tremendous, tremendous blow. In the North, the... Um, impact of a world being turned upside down is, I think, really interesting because all of a sudden, the big impossibility in U.S. politics was to have immediate, uncompensated, unplanned emancipation of four million people. Abolitionists had sometimes called for it. They'd never gotten any traction politically in um, gaining support for that idea outside of the African-American community and handfuls of heroic uh, whites. But once that happened, then people could think about all sorts of other things that might happen. And so it was a fearsome thing, yes, for elites in the North. And uh, conservative newspapers, for example, were very, very loath to open the door to emancipation, partly because they knew that it would create desires for emancipation in the rest of the population also. David Rodiger is my guest. He's a historian and the author of Seizing Freedom, Slave Emancipation and Liberty for All. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. And in fact, David, your book Seizing Freedom is really about what gets set in motion by the self-emancipation of the slaves, uh, not just in the South. And you argue that this, what you call radiating impulses toward freedom, really transform and challenge much of American society. I wonder if you could talk about how it affected the women's movement, those striving for women's suffrage. And you write that just in the same way that the idea of immediate uncompensated freedom of the slaves was seen as totally in the realm of of what was impossible, that similarly women's suffrage was seen in, in the same way. Yes, if there were kind of a craziest, the second craziest thing in antebellum politics, it would be votes for women. Uh, in 1848, which is sometimes talked about as the first women's rights convention, Seneca Falls in upstate New York, uh, the 300 delegates there, presumably the uh, white women most on fire about the idea of women's freedom, they almost couldn't bring themselves to uh, pass a, a resolution in favor of, of women's suffrage. And by some accounts, Douglas, Frederick Douglass had to be brought in to kind of remind 
American feminists at that convention that sometimes you need to demand things that are immediately on the horizon that seem impossible but that are morally uh, right. So some progress was made in the 1850s, but it was still uh, in the realm of the impossible that that you could envision uh, universal suffrage, even for white women. So how did then these radiating impulses change the women's movement and reshape it? As you've mentioned, there were obviously links between some abolitionists like the former slave Frederick Douglass and the women's suffrage leaders preceding the Civil War. But what happened in the wake of this general strike of the slaves? And it really is in the wake of the general strike of the slaves, not so much in the wake of just the war by itself. Early in the war, uh, leading uh, American feminists were so uh, steeped in abolitionism, which was their cause as well, uh, and a cause which in many cases uh, gave women activists their first chance to speak in public. It was about that kind of overwhelming moral issue that... uh, and uh, Indian displacement that uh, white women began to claim the right to speak in the public sphere because of the overwhelming importance of the brutalities that they were addressing. So women like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, uh, when the war started, they didn't immediately act. Uh, they took the position, much like Garibaldi took in, in Europe when Lincoln asked Garibaldi to bring an Italian regiment on behalf of the Union, and he said, this isn't a war about freedom. I'm not going to do it until there's emancipation. I'm not going to talk about it until there's emancipation. Well, Stanton and Anthony said the same thing, that they supported the war effort, but they weren't going to make a feminist case for the war uh, until it became an emancipatory uh, war. As the Emancipation Proclamation approached taking effect, they formed a group called the uh, Loyal, the National Loyal Women's League, which was to support the war effort. And it actually, its uh, symbol was a black man, apparently, uh, in the in the way it's pictured, throwing off shackles. So the 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 first uh, organized, what the kind of proto women's suffrage feminist group in the United States actually had uh, an enslaved person throwing off shackles as its own symbol. You made the point that the women's movement was energized by the self-emancipation of the slaves, but just backing up for a moment, how did the Civil War itself change gender relations for white women and men? Well, in many ways, women were thrust into... um, occupations or managerial roles uh, on farms uh, and in businesses uh, that they had never had before. They, of course, had even more uh, responsibilities within uh, households and where child-rearing was concerned just because there was such a wholesale uh, movement of male labor uh, into the Army, both in the, both in the North and in the, in the South. So... The South is a very dramatic example where you have uh, slave mistresses running plantations in many cases in ways that they would have uh, known how to do and done sometimes, uh, but 
ideologically, nobody would have acknowledged in the 1850s that a slave mistress was capable, or slave mistresses in general were capable of running the plantation. That happened in a lot of northern businesses. It happened in many, many, many northern farms. So there's that. There's this kind of change in economic roles that uh, women north and south uh, underwent. But then there's also this kind of emotional labor that uh, and uh, healing labor that's taken on by women. Uh, one of the points of the book is that we know about the 600,000 or so deaths uh, to soldiers and sailors in the in the Civil War. We talk less about the fact that more people were disabled than died. And I think if we thought about post-traumatic stress in a kind of a modern way and thought about what what kinds of uh, toll emotionally was taken on on soldiers, that it would be many, many more people were disabled uh, than died in the Civil War. And the uh, responsibility for uh, nursing uh, and uh, nurturing those disabled soldiers also fell greatly on women. And and one of the uh, Loyal Women's League's activities was to kind of foster that care uh, in support of the war effort. So there's there's a way in which women's work expands both in traditional ways that we think about labor, wage labor, all of a sudden uh, all the printers are gone. So you might uh, in some cities find women printers much more accepted during the war than, uh, than not. Uh, but also there's this whole realm of disability that was one of the really surprising things about the book for me was that I found so much to say about uh, the, the impact of disability in the, in the wake of the war. Tell us more about that and how, with so many white men disabled, did it shape the self-perception of whites and others? If there were a kind of a premise for the U.S. Republic before the Civil War, it was the able-bodied, independent white man. Uh, alone in the world, the United States decided that any such white man ought to be able to vote, uh, that 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 white patriarch uh, had a role not only in owning his farm, in uh, uh, running his, his family, uh, but also in ruling the a nation. So whenever the United States talked about independence from the war for independence forward, it was talking about this independence that was premised on ability uh, and on presumed ability for white men in general to run things and to, and to run their own lives. Now all of a sudden you had probably a million uh, disabled white men, North and South, who um, were not in a position to uh, portray themselves as those able uh, core of the Republic citizens that had been so much what the mythos of the United States was uh, before the war. And in many cases, they turned to their um, family members who were female, and it was they who were the strengths of the, of the family. So, uh, women's suffrage grows from these great uh, movements uh, like national conventions and like ties with the abolitionists. It grows truly from those things, but it also grows from all these little interactions in families in which women have more power, more responsibility, more duty, more emotional labor, and make claims on the basis of having those things. 
Well, I want to ask you about your argument that the self-emancipation of the slaves is is the key factor in all of this that sets in motion other liberatory movements or gives them momentum that they didn't have. Uh, is it possible to separate out the effects of the war from the impact of that self-emancipation? And I, I ask that because if you look at various other examples in history, sometimes you can find uh, revolutionary upsurges following war, partly because so much is asked of people during war, and partly also because it does upend the established order, and so women's suffrage in, in Britain following World War One, and so on, that uh, yeah, these things yeah. are, are sort of turned on their heads. So how do we separate out the effects of the Civil War itself in all its dislocations and this general strike of the slaves setting in motion all sorts of other things? I think one way we can see it is in language and other uh, things that, thing that wars do uh, along the lines that you're mentioning is that they bring together tens and hundreds of thousands of people who would have otherwise never met each other. And so the, uh, the giant encampments are these incredible places of education and political education, and they're places where often, uh, as you say, radical ideas thrive. But if we think about those camps in the Civil War example, one of the key uh, moments in those camps was that people began in the middle of the war uh, the Army being overwhelmingly farmers and workers, if you had uh, $300, you could avoid the draft. Uh, so people are conscious that it's a poor man's fight, as people said at the time. They're in these camps. They um, have been the people who accept uh, contrabands, African-Americans fleeing toward freedom. They're learning things about race. They're sitting around in these camps. Uh, sometimes if they have a German 1848 revolutionary commander, as in many of the Missouri uh, cases, they're reading radical literature in, in German. But they sit around in these camps, and the discussion that's the most generative, I think, is they begin to say, what would emancipation be for us? And it's that language of emancipation, or sometimes the slaves called emancipation jubilee. And so do white workers uh, have a familiarity with Bible verses about jubilee. And so there'd be these conversations in the camps about what would jubilee be for me? What would emancipation be for me? And the labor papers, uh, such as they existed in the time, particularly in Detroit and Philadelphia, picked up on this, and they actually invited people to, think, to uh, write in and say, what, what's your emancipation? And overwhelmingly, uh, in the camps, it was that language of emancipation that uh, enabled people to then say, oh, well, we labor too, and our emancipation would be an eight-hour working day. Our emancipation would be to only work eight hours a day instead of 10, 12, 14, 16 hours a day. So I don't think, you know, in terms of your question, that one can prove in any kind of scientific way that it's only the uh, uh, emancipation of slaves that prompts this movement. But I think we can see a lot of ways in which the achievement of this impossible emancipation structures the very way that people talk about these things. Uh, Marx, in the first international, and Marx was a, a war correspondent, wrote articles for the U.S. press uh, about the, the Civil War. 
when the International Working People's Association, Working Men's Association, uh, convened for the first time in London in 1864, so during the war, practically its first words are these ringing words about the, the uh, emancipation of the working class has to be self-emancipation. And that language of emancipation was something that Marx wouldn't have had, or the, the people who wrote it wouldn't have had, in 1858, it was the uh, experience of seeing four million people in the process of emancipating themselves that gave the very language to the way that people were talking about these things. You're listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly, and today I'm speaking with historian David Rodiger about his book, Seizing Freedom, Slave Emancipation and Liberty for All. That's published by Verso. His other books include The Wages of Whiteness and Class, Race, and Marxism. So, what did the labor movement look like in the United States prior to the Civil War, and how was it changed or affected by the self-emancipation of the slaves? Well, labor movement meant something a little bit different than, than our modern uh, association of labor, just meaning trade unions, or at least until workers' centers and some of the recent developments we've tended to think in my lifetime about the labor movement consisting mostly of the trade unions. There were trade unions uh, in the antebellum pre-Civil War United States, and in some cities they were important, but usually just for little periods, and then they'd recede again. Or they were important in crafts where skill mattered a lot. You could kind of uh, win things from your employer because there were only so many skilled printers uh, available to do the work or machinists available to do the work, blacksmiths that that you knew uh, how to do. So a weak labor movement, not a national labor movement, a kind of city-based labor movement. And then on top of that, uh, people in unions either uh, voluntarily or or through coercion massively enter the army. So by the middle of the war, there scarcely was a labor movement. There were labor newspapers, but there was very little of of a labor movement. And it's really during the war that the um, labor movement uh, creates itself in its modern form. And again, it doesn't create itself specifically around trade unions. It it creates itself mostly around these organizations that were called eight-hour leagues that were kind of uh, mass organizations of labor in any given place that uh, fought for legislation uh, around the eight-hour working day. And how did this new labor movement then relate to these other movements that were exploding, the momentum of of freed slaves and and the women's movement in the aftermath of the Civil War? There's a tragic story to be told, and there's a story that I think ought to be told before the tragedy. The, the, The more hopeful story is that in the... During the war years and just after, there was such an upsurge in uh, the labor movement and in these eight-hour leagues. Uh, And actually, the eight-hour leagues won in five or six states, at least symbolic legislation providing an eight-hour working day, which was just unheard of. If there's a a third more, most impossible thing in uh, life, 
in the middle of the 19th century in the United States that you'd only work eight hours a day. Nobody in the world worked eight hours a day. One little neighborhood in Australia had had achieved the eight-hour working day around tremendous heat and tremendous labor shortages. But eight hours was completely unheard of. It wasn't even a demand in, in most of, of Europe. And all of a sudden, it becomes this galvanizing mass movement. And during that motion, um, Du Bois insisted on this. White workers were really learning things about race, and they were not uh, by any means perfect on racial issues, still less perfect on, on gender issues. But there was this tremendous opening up uh, towards the women's movement and toward black movements and a kind of a recognition that uh, these three groups were all doing impossible things at the same time. So uh, black workers are invited to the National Labor Unions, which is a white group. Uh, the National Labor Union takes shape out of all this ferment uh, at the end of the Civil War. And it, for two conventions, has this kind of unheard of opening toward black workers. There are uh, prominent feminists who are able to, to join the National Labor Union and the influence the labor movement in New York City quite greatly, especially around women's printers. Uh, that There's this uh, uh, effort to train women's printers and to bring them into the, into the union. So there's a moment of great hope, and it's a long moment, it's a two- or three-year uh, moment. And some working-class leaders, especially if they were German-Americans, especially if they were land reformers, had also been close to abolitionists. And so there, people weren't starting from, from nothing. But there was an awful lot of room for backsliding on uh, on every front. Uh, uh, when male printers started to say, we don't want to be in competition with female printers, the official labor movement was very willing to acquiesce. When, uh, to take another example from printing, when Frederick Douglass's son, who was a printer, uh, tried to join the International Typographical Union, there was a lot of pushback. Ultimately, there were compromises uh, in that particular case, but the uh, stance of the labor movement came, became, well, maybe we can have separate labor movements. Maybe we don't need a united uh, labor movement. So there was this kind of tremendous falling out among people who, were very, who seemed to be approaching a kind of working alliance, but who all of a sudden found reasons to... Um, uh, quarrel over what were declining resources, and they were they were people who were also kind of set against each other uh, by employers. I'd like to ask you more about that part of the story, but before we do, I wonder since I've been asking you about this story in black and white, other groups are also part of this story. Tell us about how Native Americans related to the freedom struggles of African-Americans and how they fit into this story? Well, some Native Americans were African. Uh, there uh, were a lot of mixed-race uh, Native Americans who uh, themselves tended to try to make their way to the Union armies, particularly in the part of the country that I'm in now, in, in Kansas and, and in Missouri and coming from Oklahoma. Uh, so Afro-Cherokees, Afro-Creeks, uh, people who 
uh, were themselves, in, uh, in many cases, enslaved, uh, join with this kind of general motion of, of black people uh, toward freedom. The um, Civil War, I mean, one of the things that was uh, sobering to me about writing this book was how little the openings to freedom were for Native American people, how much uh, uh, the Union cause, for example, uh, executes uh, people for mildly rebelling in behalf of enforcement of treaty rights in Minnesota during the war, and there's very little outcry about that. Again, in the place where I am in Kansas, uh, people talked about and talk about the free state of Kansas and the uh, uh, great battles of John Brown and others uh, to keep slavery out of the state. But the state had actually been Indian territory until the, until the early 1850s. And so the same process that created the free state of Kansas also accelerated settler colonialism sway in Kansas the guns and the military knowledge and the size of the army created by the Civil War also leads to this terrible period uh, in the later 1860s through the 1880s of the decimation of Indian populations and the uh, fighting of anti-Indian wars. So um, Wendell Phillips, the great white abolitionist, uh, writes in 1869 in an anti-slavery uh, newspaper about protests that were going on by Native Americans against the building of the Transcontinental Railroad. And the Native population realizes that once the railroad is in, the opportunity to shuttle troops around and to uh, put down rebellions and to seize land and the development of the West is going to be so much greater that they're resisting the railroad in every way possible. And Phillips writes in solidarity with these protests, which involved... Uh, in some cases, destroying track, in some cases, attacking workers. Uh, and he, he does so with the realization himself that this is very unfamiliar terrain for him, that there's not really a tradition of uh, African-American abolitionist, Native American solidarity. And he, he, he wishes, uh, he's a pacifist, so he doesn't wish that the violence will... Uh, attack persons, but he wishes the victory of these attacks on the, on the railroad. And he says, this is a, in some ways the most important struggle going on. And then within two years, uh, Phillips is back to being kind of a traditional liberal on Indian questions. He doesn't support Indian autonomy. He said, there's no movement there that he can ally with that involves uh, support of Native rights. So he goes back to being for Indian citizenship and for certain limited reforms and kind of ignores the actual struggles that are going on in the West. How does the self-emancipation of African Americans in the Civil War uh, and the, the sort of heady emancipatory spirit following the Civil War affect the Irish and how they relate to these struggles? Yeah, I think it's important to break out the Irish still at this point from the white population in general. Uh, the the Irish are um, very much fighting the war. They're they're very involved in being drafted and in and in, in fighting the war. And a fair number of them uh, join with Irish liberation in mind. So there are 
Irish militants who go into the Union Army, uh, partly because they're interested in emancipation in a lot of different realms, but also partly because they want to gain experience as fighters and as, as people who can fight for Irish um, independence. So uh, the center of Irish nationalism in the world kind of becomes the United States for a moment. There's this uh, abortive attempt to invade Canada on behalf of, of Irish nationalism uh, in the middle of the 1860s. And uh, so there's, there's that at its kind of leading edge of extraordinarily politicized people uh, who are Irish-Americans uh, and who are also often kind of more sympathetic than the rest of the population to land reform uh, and to the right to land for uh, emancipated slaves. But then there's also a, a tendency within the Irish population. The Irish population had overwhelmingly opposed abolition, had often mobbed abolitionists in the United States. The, in Ireland, people supported abolition. But when they got to the United States, the combination of right-wing politics and the church and a kind of hatred for the for what was perceived as elitism among abolitionists and fear of black labor competition combined to make Irish Americans a kind of a bulwark for white supremacy in certain ways. And so in the draft riots in uh, 1863 in New York City, these are draft riots because they're Irish Americans rioting against the draft, but they also end in attacks on uh, black institutions and on black people who are in the streets. And so there's a much more uneven kind of Irish uh, response in which all kinds of new impulses toward freedom are activated, but then some kind of old habits also raise their head. I'm speaking with David Rodiger. He's professor of American Studies and History at Kansas University, and we're speaking about his book, Seizing Freedom, Slave Emancipation and Liberty for All. I'm Sasha Lilly, and the program is Against the Grain. So your your book traces both the rise of this emancipatory period and then it's falling apart. And I want to return to that, but I wonder if you could set the stage by talking about... Reconstruction following the Civil War and the backlash against it as the backdrop to fracturing coalitions. Du Bois' Black Reconstruction has a striking line in it in which he says, if you looked back from 1876, it would be almost impossible to imagine that just 10 years earlier, Americans had believed in human freedom and equality. So rough uh, quoting. Uh, and what he, what he meant by that was that he didn't want to dismiss what happened in the war. He didn't want to uh, miss this, what he called, magnificent drama of people liberating themselves and then other people changing their minds about what's possible in the, in the world and changing their minds about black people. But then he also says, 10 years later, at the end of Reconstruction, you could see that all, much of that had gone away. And so you see that in a, in a zillion different ways in, in Reconstruction. The most dramatic and the one that's written about all the time is the seizing of political power uh, by white elites in the South, uh, although often in uh, combination with northern capitalists, so that the, the way that um, white elites, sometimes ex-planters, sometimes not, get back into power in the South 
is often to give away resources uh, uh, like timber or coal uh, to northern companies or uh, to kind of agree to be junior partners and managers in northern um, uh, enterprises in the south. So you get this motion toward political economic reconciliation between north and conservative elements in the south at the expense of of black people. And so what looks like through much of the late 1860s is going to be an experiment, a a wonderful experiment in multiracial democracy involving a base of African-American voters and some poor whites who are willing to vote with uh, African-Americans is smashed, and it's smashed by those big processes. It's also, frankly, just smashed by terror. By uh, There's a lot in the book about Ku Klux Klan terror, but also terror committed by uh, groups with scores of other names that had the same project, which was to keep black people out of politics and to keep poor whites from uniting with black people. So you mentioned earlier that there had been a moment, a prolonged moment, in which coming out of the Civil War, coming out of the emancipation, self-emancipation of the slaves, that there was the interlinking of the various movements and peoples, the freed people, the former slaves, women, and wage workers, and that after that period of time, those fragile coalitions started falling apart. You suggest that this isn't just uh, an issue of historical interest, but in some sense something that we should all take to heart in, in looking from the present to that time. And I wanted to ask you how you understand the limitations of the unity of those people and the fragmenting of their alliances. Was it something that in some ways was very likely to happen after the energies of that period ebbed away? Could we understand it in any other ways? How should Mm -hmm. we get a handle on it? Because clearly those divisions, in many ways, never went away. Yes. This was the biggest challenge of the book for me, of writing the book, uh, was to think about this, this ebb that followed the upswelling of of freedom. And at certain times I thought, well, I just won't write about that. I'll, I'll just end on the crescendo and, and, and stop uh, there and leave it for other people to, to figure out the, the, the results. I wrote the book. These are the book essentially is lectures that I've given and honed and researched further. And some of things that I've written books about, like the movement first started working day, but mostly just things that I wanted to, if I got to lecture to a labor school, I wanted to give this lecture. If I lecture to my students, I want to give this lecture. I think it's very, very, this lecture of self-emancipation and radiating freedom is a very, very important topic. But I wasn't going to write a book about it. And then when Arab Spring happened, in talking with students, uh, I found myself predicting that there'd be new eruptions of freedom in unexpected places. And then some of the students would take the next class with me. And by the time of the next class, it wasn't just Tunisia. It was Egypt and Bahrain and then London and, and uh, Spain and, and uh, 
occupy in the United States. And, and these students, I think, sort of thought I was a, a soothsayer. Of, and all I, that I was doing was trying to, to think about what happens when a group of people unexpectedly does an impossible thing in history, and it does inspire other people, and it's, it's worth our knowing that. It's, it, it's necessary that we know that. But the problem is that we don't then just go from strength to strength, that some of the uh, old habits, but also old uh, differences in the ways that people are exploited uh, reassert themselves. So I've become really interested in writing about the question of solidarity. The last essay in my uh, Class Race and Marxism book is, a, is an essay about solidarity. And in particular, I, I think it's important that young people who build social movements today and old people uh, like myself, sometimes I think we think that when unity fails, it's entirely our personal uh, failing that made that happen. And one of the things that I tried to, to get at in the concluding uh, sobering passages, pages of this book, is that there is this real structural difference in the way that some groups are treated as opposed to others, and that there's always a kind of a tendency toward solidarity, but also a tendency toward disaggregation and and. Uh, and disunity. The best example of this concretely in, in the book is the very wrenching decision that people had to make uh, about the 14th and 15th Amendments and the inability of the Republican Party to uh, pass a 14th or 15th Amendment that would have given women's suffrage and black uh, suffrage and, and equal protection for both groups explicitly. Um, and once you uh, got the issue posed in that way, and with the Klan uh, marauding in the southern countryside, it was very logical from Frederick Douglass's point of view for him to say, we take what we can get. We get the, the vote for black men. We use that as a platform to build uh, broader movements for suffrage uh, in general, and we use the vote to uh, protect people against Klan violence. Uh, it was equally logical for... Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton to say, hey, you're leaving us behind. Uh, you're, we, we now become the one exposed group, or as they actually put it, we and disabled people become the exposed groups who are rightless in, uh, in this society. So, you know, I, I guess my own view is that probably people should have toughed it out on the left uh, for uh, winning all demands together in that instance. As it turned out, black people were only able to exercise civil rights in the area of the country where they lived uh, for another 10 years or so after that in any case. But that's not to say that there wasn't a logic in Douglas's, uh position and that this wasn't just a very, very hard kind of political reality that people had come up against. I think we'll have to have you back. So much more to discuss about that enduring question. David Rodiger, I want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I enjoyed this.
I've been speaking with the author of Seizing Freedom, Slave Emancipation and Liberty for All. That's published by Verso, and you can find a link to it on our website, againstthegrain.org. He teaches American Studies and History at Kansas University, and his other books include The Wages of Whiteness and Our Own Time. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks for listening, and please tune in again next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. Please visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio and a way to sign up for our podcast. And you can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio or follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. KPFA, Miko Tolliver here on the deck with my dashiki and hand drum honoring this Juneteenth holiday weekend. Juneteenth became a federal holiday last year when President Joe Biden signed the Juneteenth National Independence Day Act into law. The holiday celebrates the emancipation of enslaved African-Americans who were freed on January 1st, 1863, when President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. This did not free slaves in places still under Confederate control. It wasn't until June 19, 1865, when 2,000 Union troops arrived in Galveston Bay, Texas, announcing that the more than 250,000 enslaved black people in the state were free. This day came to be known as Juneteenth. In of this day, the KPFA radio station will be closed Monday, June 20th. Tune into Africa Today Monday evening at 7 p.m. with Walter Turner as he discusses recent political developments in West and Central Africa. 
Please join KPFA for a very special matinee Zoom event on Sunday, June 26 at 5 p.m. when we welcome delegate Danica Rome and her new book, Burn the Page, a true story of torching doubts, blazing trails, and igniting change in conversation with best-selling author Charlie Jane Anders, host of the award-winning podcast, Our Opinions Are Correct. An inspirational memoir meets manifesto by Danica Rome, the nation's first openly trans person elected to U.S. state legislature. Burn the Page is a colorful, no-holds-barred account of Rome's life and political work, which delights for its unabashed candor. An inspiring story of self-acceptance and determination. Tickets to Danica Rome and Conversation with Charlie Jane Anders on Sunday, June 26th are available at eventbrite.com or by visiting kpfa.org events. You're listening to 94.1 KPFA, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at KPFA.